Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. So welcome everyone to our Christmas special. Uh, Virginia and I have planned a lovely Christmassy episode today, which is actually a little hard to do, isn't it, Virginia? Because it's 42 degrees outside uh, here in Perth. And uh, we are in an air-conditioned studio, which is still struggling in the heat. But we're still managing to have cups of tea and we've got our Christmassy feasting has already started. And Louise's beautiful Christmas cake with little bits of chocolate through it, which is just divine. And we've got some mince pies and then a few strawberries just as a sort of (laughs) which neither of us have touched (laughs) and I think we should start off today Ginny by acknowledging the passing of Clive James yes James was an Australian born in New South Wales and um, he has died very recently in Cambridge England he was a television and literary critic a broadcaster and a writer himself Uh, And he probably became best known in the UK as a television critic for the Observer newspaper. And then also he had these television shows which were wildly popular, um, Saturday Night Clive and Saturday Night Clive on Sunday. Oh, that's right. Do you remember those? Yeah, Yeah, I do. I do. What many Australians know about James is that he left Australia as a young man, as a university student. He he, I think, achieved a place at Cambridge University and he never really returned to Australia, no, only to visit. No. And, you know, he was a contemporary of Germaine Greer, Brett Whiteley, Bruce Beresford, Robert Hughes. Uh, and we might actually one day feature an episode uh, on his writing, but his biography, Unreliable Memoirs, is probably the one that captures the essence of his complex relationship with Australia, I think. Yes, I loved um, that book. And I've asked a bookseller recently... Evidently, all of his books are out of print Mm, at the moment. mm. So publishers have really been caught on the hop, haven't they, really? Which is strange because everyone knew how sick he was and I know his obituary was written years ago because he declared that he didn't have very long to live. So it is interesting that the publishers don't have back copies and aren't ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, one of the things that uh, Louise and I have discussed a few times is classics that we've never read. And we both have several that we <laughs> would like to read at some stage. <laughs> that we admit to not reading. <laughs> yes, yes, there's many actually. <laughs> but we both decided that we want to read Middlemarch by George Eliot. And it was very fortuitous that Scribe Books have sent through to us both the ARC and the final copy of their new release, which is called Falling in Love with George Eliot by Cathy O'Shaughnessy. And it looks as though it will make a lovely companion read to Middlemarch. So Louise and I are going to read Middlemarch and Falling in Love with George Eliot in March next year. And we thought there might be some listeners who have also not read Middlemarch who might like to read it with us. Um, just as a very relaxed 
read along. It won't be structured at all. We won't require anyone to be up to a certain <laughs> chapter by a particular date. There won't, won't be any spoilers. We won't do any spoilers. We may chat about it a little bit in a very non-spoiler way across the month of March and then we're going to discuss it in the podcast that goes to air on Friday the 3rd of April. So if there are any divers who would like to take the plunge into Middle March with us or to even revisit it if you've already read it. That was very well done, Virginia. I thought that was rather good. (laughs) Then this gives you plenty of time to get hold of a copy and also to get hold of a copy of Falling in Love with George Eliot if that interests you and if you'd like to read that with us as well. Uh, And some people might even like to make an early start if you think that it will take you a bit longer to read. And they're both, that that is two quite big books. Yeah, they're meaty books. Yeah, and in fact, I will definitely be making an early start. um, I'll be starting over the uh, summer. Yes. So which Christmas classic have you read for today, Lou? I decided that I would read a story that's sort of been represented and on occasions misrepresented in virtually every form of media known to man, film, (laughs) cartoon, pantomime, television, (laughs) and that is um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And I know you've read it as well, Ginny. I'm a big reader of Charles Dickens, but I hadn't actually read A Christmas Carol for years. Look, just a little bit of information about Charles Dickens. He he really was an incredible guy. The British writer Claire Tomlin has written a biography of his life, which is really interesting and I would recommend it. Dickens was born in 1812. His father was a naval clerk who was a pretty ambitious guy, but he would spend the family's money well beyond their means. Um, His mother aspired to be a teacher, which might give you some clues as to where Charles ended up himself. But his father ended up in a prison for debtors in 1824 when Charles was just 12 years old. So he had to leave school and work in a factory to help support the family. I think that was the defining event in his life, wasn't it? Hugely, yes, because it gave him a first-hand sort of acquaintance with poverty, didn't it, really? Because he was working alongside people in the factory who Mm. had very little... And then, look, even after his father left prison and he went back to school, as you said, Virginia, this experience sort of never left him. He became an office boy at a law firm, he studied shorthand, and then he became a shorthand reporter uh, for the courts and then afterwards a parliamentary reporter. Oh, so that explains where he gets he, all his knowledge yeah, of and the all his legal system. Yeah, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know yeah. that. He was a parliamentary and a newspaper reporter oh. for a while. And he, of course, edited a weekly journal for 20 years. He wrote 15 novels, five novellas, hundreds of short stories, uh, and he lectured. Now, you know, he used to give lectures and he was a campaigner um, for education. And he wrote many of them as a monthly instalment, didn't he? yeah. Or uh, even Martin a weekly. Chuzzle, which was. I think um, they're weekly, actually. Yeah, and of course there's the Pickwick Papers, which yeah. were instalments as well. What an undertaking to yeah. just have to churn out a, a fully complete chapter. Well, and, and, and it's interesting because I read on that demand, A like Christmas that. Carol, which I'll get to in a minute, he was in the middle of, of writing um, instalments of Martin Chuzzlewood and sort of had a bit of writer's block. And so he would go out and walk in the streets at night and he bashed out A Christmas Carol in six weeks. Wow. Which is incredible when you think about yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it is. But yeah, he became very passionate about the rights of children and lots of the re- other reforms in Victorian England. And obviously that experience comes through in many of his novels. So, A Christmas Carol. The story's set in London, as of course many of his books are, in the City of London. There's a reference to the Mansion House, which of course is the residence of the Lord Mayor of London. The opening chapter sets the scene for the whole book. It's a very short book. Uh, it opens at the money-lending firm of Scrooge and Marley. And Ebenezer Scrooge is the surviving partner. Um, his 
colleague Marley has been dead for seven years. And on the afternoon of Christmas Eve, he has a number of visitors. The first visitor is his nephew, Fred, uh, who calls into the office to invite his uncle to dine with the family for Christmas. And Fred is the only child of Scrooge's sister, Fran, um, who has since died and whom Scrooge loved dearly. The invitation is declined. He's also visited upon by two gentlemen who are trying to raise money for the poor. But Scrooge is such a miserable, miserly man with no joy and no empathy for others, and he declines that as well. And uh, makes some rather nasty comments he does, about he? The, the poor. Well, that they should just hurry up and die to... Reduce the population. Or reduce the population. The surplus population. Yeah, I think the surplus, something like uses that. the word surplus, yeah. yes. And those men leave empty-handed. And also a young carol singer attempts to sing a carol through the office <laughs> keyhole. But Scrooge takes up a very large ruler, doesn't he, and frightens him away. Um, so it's soon time to close up for the day. And um, Scrooge has a very sort of, I suppose, long-suffering clerk, Bob Cratchit. A very sort of popular, Bob. popular Dickens character. And he gives, very reluctantly gives him the day off for Christmas, doesn't he? But he reminds him that he must come in early the day following Christmas. It's just awful. <laughs> awful. Scrooge goes home, he eats dinner at his local tavern, and then he goes back to his house, which is actually a house full of offices, where Marley used to live, his partner Marley used to live. And as he approaches, he thinks he sees the face of Marley on the large knocker on the front door, but he quickly dismisses it. And later he's sitting by a very meagre fire in his um, front room. Of course, he hasn't put much wood on it because no. he's not prepared to pay no. for much wood on the no. fire. And he thinks he hears someone in the cellar and he can hear the sound of dragging chains. And he remembers that ghosts are often said to walk with chains. And indeed, Marley's ghost emerges. And Scrooge is terrified, but he tries to control his fear by denying the existence of the ghost to start with. So Marley begins to tell Scrooge that... Um, since his death, he has been captive by the constant weight of the chains. And, of course, this you know the, the, it's a very symbolic story. And these are Dickens' symbols of regret and remorse that are weighing heavily on Marley for how he has conducted his life. And Marley explains that particularly at this time of year, Christmas, he is reminded of how poorly he treated his fellow man. And he is there to warn Scrooge that he can escape the same fate as Marley if he changes his ways and that he will be visited upon by three spectres or ghosts. And then, of course, that's exactly what happens. Scrooge is visited upon by three spirits, in turn, one after the other. And they are all dressed differently, and there's a lot of sort of Christian symbolism. We could spend yes. a long time talking about yes. the Christian symbolism in the book. Yep. There's the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Well, the ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge back to his childhood, and his own family circumstances and his sister Fran when they were younger, where he worked as a young man and a young woman that he was involved with and then subsequently rejected. The ghost of Christmas present takes him through the streets of London and he observes all the bountiful produce in the grocery shops and stalls and the sort of joy. You know, he describes the plump fruit. Yes. And uh, it's really this sort of idea... I believe that it was in the Victorian times that the whole feasting at Christmas really came to the fore. Mm. And I think that that's what Dickens was getting at, was yes. one of those Victorian traditions of feasting. And, it, of course, it's a contrast to... Everyday life. Everyday life, yeah. yeah. And and I, when I was reading it, it really did bring to mind the beautiful London shops yes, and the true. effort they go mm. to with decorating at, at all different seasons, and Christmas is one. Yes. 
with all the beautiful red ribbons and it, it's all very abundant and and of course abundant gorgeous. for some people but <clears throat> but not for many such a others contrast, yeah yes. such a contrast the ghost of Christmas present also takes Scrooge to his nephew's house and also to the Cratchit household, um, who Scrooge sees are living in cold temperatures and in poverty. And he sees that Bob Cratchit, his clerk, is this wonderful father. Yeah. And, you know, he still manages to create such an enormous amount of joy in the house for his wife and his children, even though they don't have very much. Mm. And how thankful the Cratchit family are for what they have. And there's a tiny Tim is Bob Cratchit's disabled son. Mm. And Scrooge, This he has a huge impact on Scrooge. He's yeah. very moved by seeing Tiny Tim in particular. And he asks the spirit, will Tiny Tim survive? Mm. And the spirit says, well, not unless something changes. Mm. And he sees that despite sort of the, the meagre wage that he pays Bob, Bob still toasts his boss at Christmas over mm. the Christmas lunch. Mm. So I think, again, these symbols sort of run through the whole of the book. But Bob, I guess, is the sort of, you know, he's the antidote to Scrooge, isn't he? He's ultimately the symbol of yep. good virtues at Christmas and yes. the virtues of forgiveness. Yes, and accepting people as they are. Yeah. And then finally the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and, and Scrooge is very fearful of this particular spirit because, of course, he's wondering what, what how his future will pan out. And he is quite grim, this third spirit, he isn't is. he? He is. He doesn't talk, scary. does he? He just no, gestures with his hands and he, he opens Scrooge's eyes finally, I think, to how things could be were he to live differently. So I, I, it's quite interesting that, you know, we had these sort of Christmas themes running through it. There's the carols, there were the Christmas trees, there was the holly, the, all these sort and of... the food. The food. And these were all things that really did come back into the fore in Victorian times. Yeah. I believe that um, Prince Albert and Victoria had uh, a Christmas tree. Right. Uh, which he had, had from Germany. And so everybody then copied. So I think the dressing of the Christmas tree was something that was revived right. with, with Victoria and Albert. And... Yeah, there's many other stories about the holly and the spruce as well. So, look, I, I love this book. I think it's um, a, a real classic. You, of course, will have seen Donald Duck as <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that, actually, Luke. There are some dreadful, dreadful adaptations, but there is a wonderful <laughs> new production coming, uh, which I believe is going to be on the BBC and in Australia on BBC First in three episodes over the Christmas season with Guy Pearce, our yeah. own Guy Pearce and Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. And Thomas Hardy's also in the production as well. And, I, of course, we didn't know this. No, So no. they must be I listening to our wonderful. podcast, oh, Virginia. They, yes. <laughs> they got the idea from us. I loved it. I, I was so glad to reread it because I had forgotten a lot of it. And I'd forgotten that he, instead of chapters, he has five little staves, staves which is a little yes. musical nod mm. to A Christmas Carol. And I really do love that message of taking a look at your life at the end and seeing what you've created. And if you don't like what you see, now is the time to make mm. changes mm. with that it's end. It's a very timely message at yeah. Christmas time, isn't it? And it's interesting how uh, similar the theme is to the film, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm which I'm going to talk about a bit later, because instead of a ghost showing the main character the end of his life in It's a Wonderful Life, the movie, um, it's an angel mm. showing him his life 
really showing him the other end, showing him what he's already done and trying to get his wings in that movie. But it's still the same concept of someone coming from another dimension and I showing someone... I thought it was someone. based on A Christmas Carol. No, it's based on um, a little novel, a little booklet, a little novel, and oh, I can't okay. remember the name of the the writer, and then Frank Capra adapted okay. it to a film. But, yeah, there is a very strong mm. similarity. And I also thought it was fun in this to see the mention of spontaneous combustion. It's yes. just one little mention. Mm. But this was published in 1843, and it's only a very passing mention. But Dickens quite famously uh, caused a furor about nine years later in 1852 when he had a character spontaneously combust into a pile of ashes in Bleak House. Mm. He was very into mesmerism, clairvoyance and, yes. and people bursting into flame. And scientists were quite outraged by the scene in Bleak House, which was mm. published in monthly instalments. So when various scientists criticised him, he then wrote a justification mm. in the following chapters. I gather that many readers trusted him and they believed that if he put a scene into a book it with was spontaneous possible. combustion, then it must be factually correct. Mm. And then scientists had to go around trying to debunk the whole mm. thing, which is interesting that one author can have so much sway yeah. with the general public. Well, he got he had such success almost immediately because, as you say, much of his works were at the Times published in instalments. People were... He was a popular writer in his day, wasn't he? He, he was. Had huge support. He was. And this is, of course, a time when there wasn't uh, television. No. So that, that was the, the medium for entertainment. entertainment. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really timely read, I think. I find December can be such a frenetic time, especially for women and mothers. Mm. We're often the ones planning end-of-year get-togethers and we're the ones putting up the Christmas tree and figuring out what to buy everyone for Christmas and cooking Christmas lunch. I realise that not everyone celebrates Christmas and we're not religious at all in our household, but we do always get together and have a, a big Christmas lunch mm. with all the family and we do exchange presents. And you can start getting a bit cranky yeah, about absolutely. all the work, which is not really the point of the no. whole thing. So I find it is quite good to watch a few fun movies and read a Christmassy book and sort of keep the spirit of I Christmas agree. front of mind. I really love the Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn movie for oh, Christmases. That's so funny, isn't where it? Where they go around to, they have to dash his, to each one. Yeah, each different parent. And mm. oh my gosh, I just, it really makes me laugh. And I also really love It's a Wonderful Life. And I try and watch that every year. Jimmy Stewart's just so fantastic. Yeah. And Donna Reed is just so beautiful. It's a, just such a beautiful touch. We are. A, uh, we tend to watch Love Actually, which that's another it, lovely one. Yeah, a bit, yeah. A bit of Christmas Eve movie. Yeah, lovely, yeah. and it does get you into the spirit. So the one I read, the Christmas book that I have read, is Christmas Pudding by Nancy Mitford, mm. and it was published in 1932 when Nancy was 28. It was her second novel after Highland Fling, and it's worth reading Highland Fling first mm. because some of the characters are introduced there. Christmas Pudding starts out with the most fabulous opening. Four o'clock on the 1st of November, a dark and foggy day, 16 characters in search of an author. And then Nancy goes and lists each of those 16 characters and she gives a very quick description of what they're doing at that point in time. And then the prologue ends, 16 characters in search of an author. 
And then the story begins in Chapter 1 with Paul Fotheringay on the 2nd of November, the next day, sitting forlornly in the Tate Gallery in a deep depression. And he's in a deep depression for two reasons. The first is that his fiancée is making no secret of the fact that she's running around with lots of other chaps. (laughs) And the second reason for his despair is that his first book has just been published. Mm. It's called Crazy Capers and it's been published to great acclaim. And it's been praised extravagantly by the critics and it's a huge success. Mm. But the problem is that Paul has written this earnest and serious book filled with passion and it ends with a suicide pact between the young lovers. But everyone thinks it's a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) And all the reviewers are delighted at the farcical story. And so Paul feels like a complete clown and a buffoon and he can't admit to anyone that he meant it as a serious book. (laughs) So it's one of those strange things to have critical acclaim for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) So the story moves along and one of Paul's friends, who he does confide in that it was actually meant to be a serious book, suggests to him that perhaps he should consider writing a biography next. And he thinks that would be a very good idea because no one could mistake a biography for a comedy. (laughs) Uh, and he might be able to redeem his professional standing. So he flicks through the Dictionary of National Biography and decides that he'd like to write the biography of the late Lady Maria Bobbin because no one has done a biography of her and all her papers and diaries are still at the family seat at Compton Bobbin in Mm -hmm. Gloucestershire. So he writes off to the present Lady Bobbin requesting access to her papers and diaries and she refuses him. And he doesn't know what to do. So a friend manoeuvres things so that Paul can go and be a tutor at Compton Bobbin to the young Bobby Bobbin (laughs) using a different surname. I was going to say, surely they would have (laughs) recognised him. (laughs) No, they didn't know him. So so they just, a friend says, I'll introduce you. I'll suggest that Paul, you would be a good tutor for Bobby. Uh, He's at Eton and he needs a tutor across the, the Christmas break. So you can have a different surname and the plan is that Paul will be able to sneak into the library and have complete access to all the journals and diaries. The Bobbin books. The Bobbin books and not actually tutor young Bobby Mm. at all. And Bobby's in on this, by the way. Mm. But Bobby's quite a wicked, he's got a real twinkle in his eye. And by coincidence, one of Paul's friends, Amabel Fortescue, has rented a house next door to Compton Bobbin for two months over the Christmas holidays. Mm. I think most of her friends think she's mad and she sort of rents it sight unseen and I think it's fairly hideous, but she invites a group of friends down to join her and to make up a house party. So the present Lady Bobbin also has a massive influx of guests on Christmas Eve, uh, some family and some friends. And so both houses, Compton Bobbin and Amabel Fortescue's house, are full of eccentrics, including the 16 characters that we were introduced Ah. to in the prologue, who are all in search of an author. So events unfold in the two houses and Paul Fotheringay gets into a lot of hot water, pretending to Lady Bobbin that he's actually Paul Fisher, the tutor. And there's a lot of comedy and there's some romance and it's all really good fun. Um, There's a lovely description of Christmas Eve when Lady Bobbin gets Lord Leamington Spa (laughs) to sneak around into everyone's bedrooms and fill their Christmas stockings at the foot of their beds uh, so no one gets any sleep. 
<laughs> because this man's creeping into their room at all hours. And then everyone gets woken up at 5am because one of the little children starts playing his new Christmas present, which is a harmonica. So it's really delightful. It's got a lovely depiction of Christmas Day when everyone eats too much. And mm. it's just a lovely, light-hearted book. It's not one that she's as well known for as her Pursuit of Love series. But I think Highland Fling and Christmas Pudding are completely delightful. There's a mm. very funny scene in Highland Fling when a character has been too long on a horse and she hasn't been on a horse for a while and she's been <laughs> in the moors I hate to shooting <laughs> and, and she basically has to take to her bed. Her ankles are all swollen. It's so beautifully written. I laughed out loud. And then there's a similar very comedic scene in uh, Christmas Pudding where Paul Fotheringay, who is actually pretending to be Paul... Uh, what is he? Fisher. Paul Fisher, Fisher. Um, has to pretend that he's proficient on a horse because that was one of the the terms of being the tutor, mm. and it's quite a funny scene. It's one of he... the terms of being in society, really, <laughs> yes, isn't yes. it? And Lady Bobbin thinks that young Bobby Bobbin needs, you know, more fresh air, and that he needs to get out and do some horse riding. And Paul is not proficient on a horse at all. It's really quite hilarious. You, you really and... do get the sense with Nancy Mitford that she's having so much fun at everyone else's expense, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, really, absolutely. Mm. She's just one of my favourite writers. I just mm. it's, a, it's a delightful book to read at Christmas time because you have a bit of a laugh and, and yet it still sort of gets you into the spirit of the thing, which I think is rather lovely. So, Lou, have you given any thought to what your favourite book has been in 2019? Oh, 2019. Yeah, look, I have, and it was a close call. But I think we discussed it in episode five. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with Jacqueline Woodson's Red at the Bone. Okay. So yes. it was that sort of intergenerational, very moving yeah. um, story of the family in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I, I just I still haven't that read book. that one. After you did the review of it, that was one that, I mean, yeah. m- nearly all of the ones you've reviewed that I haven't read, I really want to read, but that one really did stand yeah, out. Yeah, it was released when we were in New York, and I don't know if that sort of coloured yeah. my idea of it, but I, I just loved it, really, really loved it. I do think when you read a book away on holidays, it does take on a different it significance. It does, it does. And how about you? Well, I find it very hard to choose a favourite book. I think my favourite non-fiction book, I would say, would easily be Any Ordinary Day by Lee mm-hmm. Sales, which recently won the Walkley Book Award. And Incredible. It's just quite outstanding mm-hmm. in her writing and the compassion that she brings to it and the balance and the thought that's gone into it. It's really quite a special book. I thought it was I wonderful. I think she should write more. She should. I'm not commenting on her on 7.30 yeah, or anything as a journalist, yeah, she's got, but I think her writing is a she's a really talented writer. And she pays a lot of attention to her writing and mm. you can tell she's worked at it mm. and it's a, a beautiful accomplishment. Mm. I think in terms of memoirs that I've read this year, I really loved, there were two that I, I just have to mention. One is called Mothership by Francesca Siegel. She's a real favourite of mine. She's written two novels. And this one is an account, uh, Mothership is an account of her experience of giving birth to her twin daughters very prematurely and the wonderful treatment that they received in the first few months of their lives. I think they almost, each chapter is is sort of each day and there there are 56 days when they're in the neonatal unit in reducing degrees of intensity and her writing is it just sparkles it's it has so much heart and it's 
absolutely special and beautiful. I don't particularly have a, an interest in birth stories and my children are grown up now. So this is not something that I'm going through at the moment and yet I would really recommend it. It's just an exquisitely written, beautiful book. And the other memoir that I really loved is a slightly foxed edition. Oh, yes, lovely. Which is called The High Path by Ted mm. Walker. He, he was a poet and there's nothing particularly special about him or his life but it is just the beautiful writing that he brings to the story and his experience around the world wars and uh, his family in England. I just, it's particularly memorable to me and I just absolutely loved it. I devoured that one. It was mm, it's interesting. Really, that's a really beautiful one. I, I love all of the Slightly Foxed memoirs. I don't think I've ever read a bad one. I've still got a few there to go, but that one really stood out. And then in terms of fiction, I think I would have to say that the book I loved the most this year is The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope. Mm. I'm a huge fan of Anthony Trollope. This one is said to be, I think it's his biggest book and it's about 750 pages long and I think some people say it was his best. It's about a man called Augustus Melmott who is a fraudulent um, sort of foreign investor or a speculator and he, he sort of gets a whole lot of people who are wanting to make a quick buck uh, so he develops a scheme and he persuades people to put money into this national plot to run a railroad from San Francisco to Santa Cruz. I don't actually think there is even a railroad. Mm. It's all false. And it's a really good exploration of human nature and the perils of speculative capitalism and greed and people trying to manoeuvre their way in society. There's a delightful Lady Carberry, who is an author. She's written this terrible book called Criminal Queens. And so there's a bit of a, a joke in there about all the different reviews that come out about her book and her efforts to sort of rev up sales. It's a whole world that he creates and uh, I just loved it. I thought it was fabulous. So that would be my best book for the year. Excellent. Have you got any ideas of books that you would like to give people for Christmas, Lou? Oh, tons. Lots and lots. Because we do, as a tradition, we do tend to give books as a Christmas present. But you gave me a little short time ago, um, Peter Temple. Oh, yeah. It's a Peter, well, I suppose it's a, it's a Peter Temple collection, The Red Hand. And I would thoroughly recommend this as a gift for Christmas. I think it's a really special collection. Peter Temple was um, a journalist and academic, and he became a writer of crime fiction. He actually came to Australia from South Africa. Yes. Um, he hadn't been here all that long, he had hadn't, he? Had he? He adopted Australia as his home wholeheartedly. Yes. And he didn't publish his first novel until he was 50. Mm. And then he published nine in 13 years, which was quite extraordinary. And of course, he is known for the beloved Jack Irish series. Yes. So this Red Hand collection was published after Peter Temple's premature death in March last year. Uh, and it has a forward by his agent. Uh, and it's published by Text Publishing. And Michael Hayward, his agent, or sorry, his publisher, has written the introduction and really chronicles his relationship with Peter Temple. It's rather lovely, little essay. And it has in it a uh, part of an unfinished Jack Irish novel. Ah, oh, what a shame. Called High Art. It's got some essays. It's got some reflections. Very interestingly, it's got some of his reviews of 
other crime fiction ah. writers, uh, which is fascinating because he's not as complimentary to some crime fiction writers as others. So that I really like that. He was obviously a very direct... Yes, and um, his students who did writing courses with him all laugh about how blunt he was. Yes, well, you know, he... And direct. And, and that's obviously reflected in his yeah. reviews as well of, yeah. of, of other things. It's also got when he won the Miles Franklin Award for Truth. Yeah. Wonderful book, Truth. Mm. It's got his Miles Franklin oration in and, there. And it's such an unusual thing for a technically a crime book Absolutely. to win. And he didn't expect to no, win it at all. I don't think anyone did, no. actually. Yeah. Uh, so the oration for that is in there. Also the screenplay for ah. Valentine's Day, which was his ABC telemovie, oh, is also in there. So it's it's a really, really fascinating collection. There'll be a lot of people who loved um, yes. his books and just an extremely complex and interesting mm, man. And mm. so I think that's a lovely Christmas mm. gift. And then I've also got some cookbooks as well that I want to talk about. But what about you? I don't really have too many ideas, but I do have one book that I think is a great little book f- that's wonderful to have around at Christmas time, which is a book by Nina Stibby, and it's called An Almost Perfect Christmas. Nina Stibby wrote a book called Love, Nina, Mm -hmm. which was a collection of her letters to her lovely sister Victoria when she nannied for Mary Kay Wilmers uh, back in the 80s. And they're completely hilarious. And they discovered them up in Victoria's attic many years later. And because she had contacts who were writers and editors, she was able to get it published. And it's just a most brilliant book. I absolutely love it. I've read it many times. And she's written several other books since. And I absolutely love her. She's hilarious. But this little collection of Christmas little sort of it's sort of a little potpourri of christmas things so like vignettes and little vignettes little ideas but there's one particular favorite in here which is where she she talks about the old fashioned christmas letters i haven't heard them called this before but she calls them a round robin yeah. where you write the standardized christmas yes. letter boasting yes. of all your accomplishments for the year <laughs> and, and send it off to everybody and everybody gets a copy and because nina's mother elspeth was the black sheep of the family she she often wasn't kept in the loop on various family matters, but the Christmas round robin was her way of staying in touch with all the antics of the various family members. So Nina and her many brothers and sisters, one sister and many brothers, used to quite enjoy receiving the round robin. And she has these sort of rules about what should go in the round robin letter. I love this. It's brilliant. Because we do receive a couple each year. So oh, They're so funny. And mm. one of the stipulations is they must not try to be funny because any attempt to try and be funny cancels out the innate funniness. Yes. She says uh, they were unintentional funny spoofs were unpopular unsporting and unchristmassy but she does this wonderful section on balance and she says although boasting was very much permitted in the round robin mm. it wasn't the done thing to present only your best news this balancing was important if you wanted the respect in your family circle and your with your friends among the wider robining community. I, I rather think that balance has been removed yes. from round robins yeah, over the changed. years. So she I is think sort boasting of going, is very much <laughs> absolutely. To the so she does this table below to illustrate, which is just so delightful. So the idea being that for every item mentioned from column A, you had to include an item from column B. <laughs> so column A has things like new dog, foreign holiday, <laughs> built a ha-ha wall that affords <laughs> terrific views, um, book deal ordained into the church, 
ran a half marathon and then you have to then select something from column B. Oh, I can't wait. Do tell. So uh, sued for whiplash. <laughs> um, identity theft. Car prang. Uh, <laughs> mudslide on branch. What say- mudslide on what? Branch, branch line. line. Oh, that means the train. Chaos on the tra- for months. <laughs> Caution for shouting at child's sport event. Oh, no, caution for shouting at child's sport event. That would do very well in Australia, I think. That That's so Australian. <laughs> um, with the built ha-ha wall next to that, she's got water contamination skin. <laughs> um, and next to ran a half marathon, she's got <laughs> jilted at the altar. <laughs> jilted at the altar. <laughs> I mean, it's just hilarious. So, um, I, I mean, it, it just surpasses anything else that you could well, give I'm anyone Well, I'm not even going to try and write around Robin now. No. <laughs> and I did entertain my family by reading some of these out last Christmas, and I'll probably do the same again. There's, there's another one here, christening, and then next that she's got <laughs> trial separation. <laughs> oh, here's, a, here's another one. Nephew's BAFTA nomination appeared as a character in ex-lover's play. <laughs> She's got um, met Lenny Henry and then column B, Varicus Veins. <laughs> Is she referring to her own or to Lenny Henry's? <laughs> and, then the, and then there's a waitrose opened a branch nearby, column B, bunion surgery. <laughs> It's absolutely delightful. She's extremely funny, so I would strongly recommend that. That's hilarious. I love it. And if I receive a round robin in the next couple of weeks, I won't be able to read it with a straight face. (gasps) I want to review a couple of cookbooks that I think would make fabulous gifts. The first, Virginia, which I know you're also familiar with, is the Little Library Cookbook and the Little Library Year, both by Kate Young. So Kate Young's actually an Australian. She's a journalist. I didn't know that. Yeah, she's a journalist, food writer, and she's a very accomplished cook and she lives in the United Kingdom. She had a column in the Guardian newspaper for quite a while and she wrote this beautiful book, The Little Library Cookbook, which is essentially a cookbook for avid readers. And it's 100 recipes from your favourite stories and it starts with before noon and it moves to around noon, afternoon tea, the dinner table, midnight feasts, parties and Christmas. So, for example, you can cook the porridge from Francis Hodgson Bunnett's Secret Garden You can cook the marmalade from Paddington or the curried chicken from Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Um, There's even a curried crab salad from Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. It's very clever. It's just fantastic. And uh, what I love about it is that she sometimes will quote part of the book where the food is referenced. Yeah. Um, She's got a chicken casserole by Barbara Pym from Barbara Barbara Pym's books, Excellent Women. It's delightful. And she also includes sort of her own reading memories as a child or current reading memories and details of growing up and where she might have read books or how she was inspired. They're her recipes, but they are the food that appears in the books. So it's just just utterly delightful. Yeah. Uh, and that was brought out in 2017, but she has brought out a companion book this year, which is The Little Library Year, and I think she's taken a whole year to do this book. I think she might have even given up her gardening column to do it. Wow. And this came out a little bit earlier this year. And I think Australian bookshops at the moment are actually selling the two as a pigeon oh, pair. pair. 
And this one follows seasons. So the volume pairs recipes and books or literary inspirations for each seasons. And each chapter has these delightful titles. So you have Long Winter Nights, The First Signs of Spring, you have Spring in Abundance, The Height oh, of Summer. That's beautiful. It is, isn't it? The way she's, mm, she's got a lovely yeah, turn of yeah. phrase. When the leaves start to turn and as the days grow short. And then within each chapter there are some lovely subheadings. So, for example, you might pack a wonderful picnic basket, which has been inspired by Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. Or you might make a herb and asparagus risotto inspired by Farmer McGregor's Garden Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit. So that's lovely, yeah. And in both volumes, there are some Christmas recipes. And of course, in Australia, we have a very hot Christmas. Many families uh, might have a pavlova as their Christmas dessert. Yeah. I know we certainly do. Yeah. And Kate Young grew up in Brisbane and she recalls having pavlova for Christmas. And she has included a beautiful passion fruit curd pavlova, which is inspired in part by the Australian classic My Brilliant Career by Miles Franklin. Oh, how wonderful. Um, that might be one, one to make for I think it might be, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to make a pavlova this year. And mm. this one sort of invokes a scene where Sibella takes some fruits, some mulberries, some apricots and some figs and she sits under a tree in the shade. Oh, how beautiful. And so Kate has made a pavlova that's included in this oh. volume to reprise that scene. So that's lovely. So, yeah, these would make a beautiful gift for somebody who loves reading and loves cooking. Yeah. And then the other book that I wanted to mention, again, a beautiful gift. It's a cookbook, but it's also a beautiful book to read. And this is Dishoom which has been uh, sent to us by Bloomsbury. It's a new cookbook, the subtitle of which is From Bombay with Love. And it is, in fact, a love letter to Bombay. It's utterly beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah, Tiffany blue, gorgeous. isn't it, just the oh, cover of it? Yeah. The first Dishoom restaurant opened in Covent Garden in England in 2010. And it was inspired by the Irani cafes, uh, which were opened by the Zoroastrian immigrants. Oh. They were once a very significant part of life in Bombay. So Zoroastrian refugees were also called Parsis and they escaped Muslim persecution in Iran and they all emigrated to India. And they set up these cafes in the 1960s and I think there used to be about 400 Irani cafes wow. in Bombay. And I think what was significant about the cafes is they sort of, they broke down barriers. They sort of brought yeah. people together over food and drink. Obviously, yeah. food does often bring people together. Yes. And they were the first places in Bombay where people of any culture, class or religion could take refuge from oh. the street, you know, have a cup of chai, simple snack or a hearty meal. And so people from all walks of life shared tables, rubbed shoulders and broke bread together. And most of the Iranian cafes have almost disappeared in Bombay. I think there's about fewer than 30 remain. Gosh. Yeah. So this beautiful book has got a map of southern Bombay in it. And again, you literally go from sunrise to sunset. Oh, that's gorgeous. From breakfast to cocktails and dinner. You go through all the food and the places um, that you'll find in your tour of southern Bombay. And it's essentially gives you a history of the city. Wow. And so it, although it is a book, I have cooked a few recipes already. The ruby chicken curry is absolutely delicious. The fire toast with the masala beans is just a wonderful breakfast dish. And I've also cooked the gum powder potatoes, which are divine. Oh, and I'm wow. going to be cooking all through the summer out of this book. I just absolutely love it. But what I love most about it is that it is a book you can take, curl up with and read. Oh, yes. Um, with lovely stories about the people and the places in Gosh, Bombay. It's beautiful, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, beautiful photographs. Mm. That would be a great gift. Yeah, what a lovely great gift, gift for someone who loves a foodie and a reader. Mm, yeah, yeah, beautiful. So what else have you been diving into this week, Virginia? Uh, well, I have been finally watching the third series of The Crown and I am just loving it, Lou. It's so good, isn't it? Mm. I didn't think I would like Helena Bonham Excuse Carter. Me, I've actually got Christmas cake in my mouth yeah, yeah. As, I'm, <laughs> as I'm saying yes. Mm, yes, Virginia. <laughs> I thought Helena Bonham Carter might not work for me at mm. all as Princess Margaret, but she was better than I thought, but I, I'm just loving it. I think Olivia Coleman is such a good actress, but she's a little bit mournful and severe for I my liking. I think she is. I think she is. I think she's a little bit too dour. Yes. I mean, the real queen is much more smiley and she has mm. much more of a quick sense of humour, which I don't think comes through. But uh, other than that, I really am just loving it. The, that sort of walk through history. I think it's just delightful. I love the guy who's playing Prince Charles yeah. and the guy who's playing Prince Philip. Yeah, I think they are both superb. I think mm. particularly, well, both of them, but particularly for me, the, I think it's Tobias Menzies who's playing Prince Philip. Yes. I think he's just superb. Yes. I think he may receive a few awards. Yes. He walks like him. He's He mm. holds his head, his whole demeanour, his hand gestures, everything is exactly right. He's really good. Superb. And there is a podcast for people who love The Crown. It's Lord Mountbatten's daughter, Lady Pamela Hicks, and her daughter, India Hicks, talking about Lady Pamela's amazing life. It's called the India Hicks Podcast. Right. Our friend Lindley put me onto it, and it's really good. Lady Pamela is 90 now, and she's lived through a lot of this history mm. that is traversed in the crown, and she has lots of funny anecdotes about her family and the royals, and they're sort of little stories that you wouldn't otherwise... No, it's almost hear. an in insider's guide, isn't yeah, it, really? Yeah, so that's really worth listening to if you've enjoyed The Crown. It's quite a nice little companion to it. And then the other thing that I've been enjoying is a podcast called Don't Shoot the Messenger with oh, yeah. Corrie Perkin and Caroline Wilson. Caroline and Corrie are two Melbourne journalists and Corrie also owns a lovely bookshop in Melbourne and I just love their podcast. I've listened to every episode and I think it's a really good test of a podcast if you feel excited when you see a new episode pop yeah, up on your phone. Absolutely. And I always make time to listen to their conversation because I really enjoy it and, and it has a sort of an ongoing theme to it. So they're very old friends, a bit like us. They met at the start of their careers as journalists and they've been each other's bridesmaids and seen each other through lots of life's ups and downs. You feel the warmth, don't yeah, you? And the depth yeah. of their friendship, yes. don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And they cover lots of current events, books, movies, recipes, TV series. And they also have a challenge for themselves every month, which is quite fun. And I often find myself laughing along with them. They do talk a little bit about Australian rules football, which I actually have zero interest in and I happily listen to it all because I just enjoy. Well, Caroline Wilson is, of course, the Australian rules football journalist. So yes. she, she's an encyclopedia. And she, she just has so much interest in that. So mm. I think her enthusiasm and interest carries mm. it along for me, even though I don't have it. So I've been really enjoying that. I think they're, they're really great. So Lou, what else have you been diving into lately? Absolutely nothing else. <laughs> but I do have to mentioned to our listeners there's a usually an ending at the end of our podcast where I mention our email address if any of you want to get in contact with us or to refer books to us or to give us some feedback and guess what for the last 10 episodes <laughs> it's been wrong so I here I am correcting the rep record and from now on it will appear uh, uh, it does actually appear correctly in our show notes 
but it doesn't appear correctly in the end message of each episode. So our email is hello at divinginpodcast.com. So we'll also make sure that next season we will have the correct message at the end of each episode. Yes. We're going to be taking a break over the rest of December and January. It's our hot summer holidays here in Perth and it's a great time for hanging out with family, going to the beach, going to the outdoor movies at sunset, swimming in the pool and reading lots of books. So we'll be back in February. It's a new decade, Mm. which is quite exciting. And it will be very interesting to see what the 2020s holds. I don't even think we can imagine some of the things that are going to feature in the next decade. Mm. So we hope you have a great Christmas and we'll see you in 2020. See you then. So divers, Louise and I are going to take a... So divers. <laughs> Sorry. We've completely lost it. Okay, I'll start again. So divers. <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> Serious face.